This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. What started out as a possible new technology for testing blood ended up with Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes recently being charged with massive fraud by the Securities and Exchange Commission. It had been viewed for a while as a biotech that could possibly change the path of such testing, and it certainly did well with a multi-billion dollar investment lineup. John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal, is the journalist who uncovered the fraud, which led to the downfall of the company and of Holmes. He takes us inside that work in his book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. He joins us on the phone, and with me in studio is Peter Conti-Brown, Assistant Professor of Business Ethics and Legal Studies here at the Wharton School. John, great to have you back with us. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Peter. Great seeing you. Always as, a pleasure. As always. So, John, I think the, the story of how you found out is an interesting point to, to start off here, because journalists get tips and sources from all different locations, and to a degree, this came to you from, I guess, a friend of a friend, correct? Yeah, it was not a primary source. Uh, I got a tip from a, a pathology uh, a pathologist, rather, in the Midwest who uh, moonlighted as the writer of a, a blog called the Pathology Blog, which he spelled uh, B-L-A-W-G. And he had read a, a profile of Elizabeth Holmes in The New Yorker and was immediately dubious about the claims she made in that story about her uh, technology's ability to test uh, tiny blood samples and to run so many tests on tiny blood samples. And uh, so he wrote a, a short skeptical blog item on his blog and was contacted by someone who had been involved in patent litigation with Elizabeth Holmes. And uh, that person in the course of this patent litigation had become uh, suspicious that that Theranos was a scam. And it so happened that um, he had, this person was named Richard Fuse, and he had just made contact with a Theranos employee who had just left the company. And the employee was uh, the former lab director. And, and the employee was alleging all manner of, of wrongdoing. And, and so I was cognizant of the fact that, you know, the, the first person who tipped me off was removed, you know, by several degrees from the primary uh, source of information. But I heard that there was this primary source of information out there, and I figured if I could just get in touch with that person, um, then I might be able to get somewhere. And, th- and that's what I did. I eventually got in touch with the former lab director and uh, had a long first conversation with him, and based on that first conversation, became uh, convinced that this was a fraud, and, and uh, it became a game of corroboration from there. And the, the game of corroboration in uh, in John's book, I mean, that uh, that understates the extraordinary lengths that, yeah. uh, that you went to uh, to confirm all of this. Now, I've been teaching Theranos in the Business Responsibility core class for Wharton MBAs since John broke the story in October 2015, shortly thereafter. Uh, and when the book came out, I, all I got to say, I just uh, I read it in about two sittings, uh, which uh, it's it's an unbelievably gripping tale. I mean, to find um, parallels to it uh, without without becoming hyperbolic, it really it reads like Woodward and Bernstein's "All the President's Men," or or to go back further, Ida Tarbell's uh, take on on Standard Oil. But but John, I've got a question for you. I mean, you get this, uh, so you've got a kind of wonky policy blog. That comes to you by your own account in the book from almost a, a bleak house kind of uh, litigation addict, right? Uh, who's got, as you as you disclose, 
has all the reasons in the world to try to rake Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos over the coals. Uh, how, talk to us a little bit about how you got from there, an obviously heavily interested source, to the process of eventually un- unraveling this whole thing. Was, were your instincts pointing in the other direction say, okay, this person just wants to blow up Theranos. I, I should move on to my next project. No. I mean, I, I was very well aware that, that Richard Fuse, uh, having been involved in litigation and having basically lost that patent litigation, w- was a biased source and had an axe to grind. But I also uh, quickly became aware uh, that he had once been uh, a source uh, 20, 25 years prior um, of a, a colleague of mine um, who, who had written a couple of uh, front page stories uh, back then uh, using Fuse as a source. And, and, and I knew from having talked to my colleague who was still at the Wall Street Journal that, uh, you know, Fuse as, as sort of colorful uh, of a character and, and vainglorious uh, as he was, uh, was also a real a medical inventor and a real medical entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, and and that you know uh, he, he wasn't necessarily all bad and he wasn't necessarily lying. Moreover, his suspicions tracked with my first impression because, like the pathology blogger, I had uh, uh, read the New Yorker profile of Elizabeth Holmes and and uh, had immediately uh, found some things in that story odd, um, and one in particular being the notion that as a 19-year-old Stanford dropout with zero formal training in medicine or lab science, that she, she could just drop out of college and, and go on to, you know, uh, create new technology uh, for blood testing that would completely change, um, change the face of that industry. I just thought that, that uh, e- even as I knew that that sort of thing happens in, in computers, in the computer industry, and Zuckerberg and, and Bill Gates 30 years before him are examples of that. You can teach yourself how to code on your dad's computer when you're a teenager. Um, you know, my, my coverage of medicine over the previous 10 years told me that um, it didn't work that way in the medical world. And mm-hmm. so that, that had made me suspicious. And then the, the pathology blogger who knew a thing or two about blood testing uh, had the same instincts that I did. And so I wasn't inclined to necessarily dismiss what Richard Fuse was saying. Yeah. Uh, of course, I, you know, I, if he hadn't just made contact with that former Theranos employee who was a lab director, then the, the situation, I might have uh, approached the situation differently and more skeptically. Right. But that the fact that I knew from the get-go that there was a primary source of information out there who was a former employee who had just left the company changed everything, really. Sure. sure. Well, I, and... I- when you talk about a startup, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we've talked here about startups and they tell their stories and, you know, it, the path went one direction and it didn't work that way. And they had to go, you know, a different direction with that with that company or with that idea. Here's a situation that seemingly could have been similar to that in that here's this idea for a machine. It really doesn't work, but then they're going to potentially take it back and work on it and, and make it make it different to get it work. But you believe that, you know, as this all developed, that there was no way that these machines were going to work as, as they played out, correct? Right. I mean, they did try to uh, implement Elizabeth Holmes's vision, which was, you know, a tiny pinprick of blood from the finger and, and that you could run the full range of lab tests on it. And, and by the way, the full range of lab tests means uh, anything from a several hundred tests to several thousand tests. Yeah. And, and they tried to, to make it happen. They, uh, the, the first iteration of the technology was a microfluidic system 
was actually the most ambitious thing they tried, and they tried that for several years and, and couldn't get anywhere. So then they pivoted to a, a more rudimentary machine that was essentially, as I describe it in the book, a converted glue dispensing robot. <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, this Theranos engineer ordered a glue dispensing robot from a company called Fisnar in New Jersey and then uh, affixed a pipette to uh, the robotic arm and, um, and program the robotic arm to sort of mimic uh, what the steps that a, a lab scientist would take at the bench to, to test blood. That was the, the device that she called the Edison. She named it the Edison after uh, Thomas Edison. And, and that was essentially the, the device that they went live with in 2013 and that they ran you know, several of the tests on the Theranos menu with. And that machine was not only rudimentary but unreliable and produced inaccurate results. And then the rest of the tests, they just ran on regular commercial machines that they hacked. Well, so one of the key themes of the book oh, – there's so much I want to talk to you about. We've only got 20 minutes. I, um, one of the key themes in the book, though, is this question, really, about the extent to which Elizabeth Holmes uh, is simply the same kind of, uh, of Silicon Valley visionary in the wrong industry or that she's just an out-and-out uh, fraud and an outlier in that respect. And the, the real difference is, I mean, if you read – your book next to uh, two others, so Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Steve Jobs and Ashley Vance's biography of Elon Musk, you see that these great visionaries in Jobs and Musk lie all the time, right? They commit fraud in a sense, right? They assure uh, the public and investors that they have a thing that they don't have and that it can do things that it won't do or in Musk's case – Although both of that is true, both of those are true, that it will be ready at a date when it it's not ready, and that's kind of an, an ethos. Didn't didn't Elizabeth Holmes just do the same thing, John? You don't think so, but why not? I mean, she did she did do the same thing, but she took it to uh, another extreme. And the the big difference, of course, was that uh, the device that that she, her product, the device that she was producing, was a medical device, and it was a device that doctors and patients were going to rely on uh, to make important health decisions. And it's a device that she commercialized by effectively rolling out the blood testing services in Walgreens stores in the yeah. fall of 2013 in, in Arizona and California. So that's an enormous difference. I mean, she styled herself after Jobs and, and to some extent after Larry Ellison, or Larry Ellison at least was an advisor in the early mm -hmm. years of the company, and, and he was also famous for exaggerating right. the, the capabilities of the Oracle database software in its early years and, and shipping Oracle software that was crawling with bugs that he basically used early customers to help him debug. <laughs> but, you know, the, these, these people, Jobs, Ellison, um, were operating in the, in the computer industry, and, and they, were, they were dealing with computer hardware and software, and it wasn't a product that people were ever going to depend on for their lives. Um, so that that's an enormous difference there. And then I, I would argue that the the scale of the lying and the frequency of the lying was greater mm -hmm. in the case of Elizabeth Holmes, and, and the lies were bigger. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's a difference there. We are joined uh, by John Carrier of the Wall Street Journal. He's author, also author of the book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. This is Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Not only were the, I mean, the lies were obviously, were big, John, but the list of investors that, that she had, was able to make contact with and, and get funding from was, was almost a who's who uh, of the business world. 
Right. And so I would make a distinction between uh, two types of investors, the investors that came in early when she had just dropped out or a few years after she had dropped out. And, and you know, she was still describing to them her vision. And yeah. they were cognizant of the fact that, that you know, she was trying to, to implement her, biz, her her vision, but that the odds, as they always are, are against an entrepreneur only um, you know, a small percentage of startups actually survive and, and an even smaller make it. So I would say that the, the Larry Ellisons and the Don Lucases and the Tim Drapers who invested early were not defrauded. The, the people who were defrauded were the investors who came in after the fall of 2013, the, the Rupert Murdochs, the Waltons, the Coxes, the Carlos Slims. These were people who, who were pitched by Elizabeth Holmes and her boyfriend, who was the number two of the company, Sonny Balwani, and who were told that, that the product worked and, and that it existed and it worked and, and it was live. And, and it, basically their, the, the proof that they submitted to these investors that the product existed and worked was the fact that they had gone live with the blood mm-hmm. test in Walgreens stores. And that's when it really crosses the line into a massive financial fraud mm-hmm. on the one hand, and then fraud against doctors and patients and the public on the other hand, because she's exposing the public in Arizona and California to these faulty blood tests. You know, one of those, uh, um, my, my primary field is in financial regulation, financial history, and one of the big questions that con- you constantly confront in securities fraud is uh, is really who cares, right? I mean, Carlos Slim is doing fine. Rupert, yeah. Rupert Murdoch <laughs> right. sold his uh, his investment back for a dollar and just used it as a, as a tax loss. Um, but what John uncovers so well in, in, in this book is uh, is just how much uh, real life, uh, real life and pain and uncertainty uh, was at risk here. It's so much more than yeah. just a, a securities fraud case. And indeed, um, in the indictment that came down from the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco after the book's publication, um, they look at both of those things. Isn't that right, John? They're looking at both securities fraud and then also wire uh, uh, wire fraud as it relates to these uh, Walgreens customers. Am I remembering that correctly? That's right. That's right. They're, they just describe it um, technically as two separate schemes, one to defraud investors and another one to defraud uh, patients and doctors. Uh, one thing I would say about the, the, the financial aspect, the financial fraud of this is that Yes, no, no one is going to feel bad about Rupert Murdoch, who's worth you know fourteen plus billion, and and for whom one hundred and twenty five million dollars is a rounding error, and no one's going to feel bad for Carlos Slim, one of the richest people in the world, or for the heirs of Sam Walton. But fraud is fraud. It doesn't matter if it's committed uh, against you know a, a person, a, a small investor, or a billionaire. It's still breaking the law, and it's still fraud. That that's one thing I would say. And then the other, I think, is that. You're right. The, the the facet of this scandal that makes it so egregious and, and in some ways that, that makes it more outrageous than, than even Enron is, is that lives uh, were jeopardized. And, and we still don't even know the extent right. uh, of, of the damage here. You know, um, 76,000 uh, consumers in, in Arizona were reimbursed in full and um, uh, nearly a million blood test results were voided or corrected. And I know from a source um, who told me recently after the book's publication that the, the last laboratory director that Theranos had who, who left the company a couple weeks ago uh, was lobbying Elizabeth Holmes to void every single blood test the company had ever returned to a doctor or patient 
because he had come to the conclusion that the quality control in the lab was so bad and so non-existent that they couldn't stand by any of the blood test results that, that they have, had ever returned to a patient. Hmm. I think that if this were only an, a, an instance of financial fraud ripping off billionaires, I agree with you that fraud is fraud and crime is crime. But we not only do prosecutors have discretion to allocate their scarce resources to the most important scandals, but the public has a breathtakingly scarce resource, and that's attention. And I think what what your book does so well is show why this is as massive as it is, why the victims here aren't only billionaires. I agree with you that, you know, that the a felony is a felony, but I disagree that a felony is a felony, right? There are some places where the stakes are just so much higher. And I don't think it's an exaggeration um, to say that if if you hadn't broken this story then, I mean, every every day counted. But if uh, this story would have come out eventually, I think, uh, although I'd be interested if you disagree with it. But even a six-month delay on breaking that story, the, the, the scale of, of human cost, it was just expanding so aggressively. Um, right. I mean, no, is I, it, am I, I right that Safeway didn't pull out until after you broke your story in 2015? Is that right? Well, the, the partnership with Safeway was on its way to falling apart when I broke my first story because, um, as I explained in the book, Elizabeth had uh, courted the, the, oh, the former CEO, CEO right? of Safeway, Steve Bird, and he had been forced to retire in the in the summer of uh, 2013. And after that point, um, uh, the, the executives that, that succeeded Bird uh, were a lot more skeptical about Theranos, and, and so the relationship was really going downhill by that point, and it's not clear that Safeway would have ever commercialized uh, the test the way mm-hmm. Walgreens did. Mm-hmm. But but I agree with you that I think it was a matter of time before this got exposed, but I also think that, that the stakes were big and, and getting bigger with each day that passed because the original plan was that, that the uh, Arizona rollout, Arizona was the, the main, uh, the sort of the ground zero for the partnership between the two companies, so they had about 45 blood draw centers and Walgreens stores in the Phoenix area. The, the original plan was to expand that nationally, and mm-hmm. to, to expand yeah. the partnership nationally and to, and to have Theranos blood tests offered in the more than 8,000 stores Walgreens has in this country. And I think at, at that point, um, you know, the chances that someone would have died from, from a uh, misdiagnosis or, or a faulty diagnosis, I think, would have increased exponentially. And it's so much more than that, right? So I've been through personal experiences, I'm sure all of us have, where a doctor sees something that's troubling and then tells the patient, you've got something that's troubling me, and so we're going to have to do more tests. And the time, hours, days, weeks, sometimes months even, when you wait for that finality, even if the answer is good, what trauma, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. so getting these, these, uh, these wrong, so breathtakingly wrong, so fraudulently wrong, uh, that's why I compare this again to one of the, you know, these, these really epic making, uh, making frauds. So, John, here's another question for you. Um, you learned so much about this entire enterprise on, on every page, but one of the things that jumped out is for those who, who hear Elizabeth Holmes, on, you know, you can check on YouTube. She's got lots of interviews there. Um, you see how carefully cultivated that image is. She's self-consciously modeling herself on Steve Jobs down to the uh, the, the vegan smoothies and the black turtlenecks and all of that. <laughs> but one of the things that you, you have there is um, she has a very striking uh, baritone voice. And it's quite deep. Um, and there was almost a, it was almost a throwaway, but you had one source who thought that that was also part of the image. I don't care particularly about that, but I think it's so fascinating how much Elizabeth Holmes invested in this presentation, uh, and number one, and number two, 
how unbelievably successful this was for in all kinds of circles, from our sitting Secretary of Defense to Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, uh, for her board to the investors that she brought in, to employees she recruited, to journalists who before John Kerry who had been largely fawning. Uh, so, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that uh, image cultivation uh, that uh, Holmes engaged in, and then why on earth would it be so successful when there were so many good incentives for people to expose this as a fraud? Why did everybody buy in to that sham uh, facade? Right. Well, you're right. She she cultivated uh, really uh, an image as the female Steve Jobs. She absolutely idolized Jobs and Apple. Um, she started wearing a black turtleneck pretty early on, around 2006, 2007. Um, Jobs had, had famously worn uh, the, the black turtleneck as well. She she hired uh, the same advertising agency as uh, uh, Jobs had because um, you know she she wanted the the brand messaging to be similar. She she had the meetings with this advertising agencies on on Wednesday, which was the same day of the week that Jobs uh, met with this agency, Shiat Day. Um, and then you mentioned the, the deep voice. The, the deep voice, um, I can confirm, was put on. And, and there's a, an anecdote in the book where a newly hired employee in 2011 um, is meeting with her uh, shortly after getting hired, and, and she forgets to put the, the baritone on at, at the end of their meeting and, and sort of slips back into a young woman's voice. And, and I think that was actually because um, she came to the realization early on after dropping out that Silicon Valley was a man's world. She was a mo- woman, and she was a young woman. And I think she she felt that to be taken seriously, she needed to to have a man's voice. Um, wow. Why did everyone get taken in? Why didn't Why didn't people uh, see through this? Well, I think first and foremost, it's because Elizabeth Holmes is actually very intelligent, um, and she's a she's a remarkable pitch woman. Um, one trait that she shared with her idol Steve Jobs is this reality distortion field. She, she looked at you with her big blue eyes, and by the way, she has this ability to not blink as often as, as most people do. Um, that, that makes her uh, even more mesmerizing. And she was really passionate and seemed genuinely passionate um, about changing the world and, and changing uh, the face of lab medicine. And, and so the, the combination of these things, you know, her, the, the way she looked at you, the, the deep voice, uh, the intelligence and the passion – uh, really um, made people believe in her and, and want to back her. And, and one thing I'll say that it's controversial to, to say these days amid the Me Too movement, but really the, the people who were taken with her for the most part and whose reputations she, she leveraged um, were, were all older men. Um, yeah. You know, it started with Channing Robertson, her, her Stanford engineering school mm-hmm. professor, uh, when she dropped out, then it was Don Lucas, who had famously groomed Larry Ellison and helped him take Oracle public. Then after he started developing Alzheimer's disease in 2010, 2011, she moved on to George Shultz, the former Secretary of State. And through Shultz, she met uh, the, the Kissingers and the Sam Nuns and, and the Bill Frists and, and on and on. And, and she took in Rupert Murdoch. She took in David Boyce. These were all older men. Uh, yeah, wow. It's extremely interesting. I mean, the the Me Too movement, I think, is is uh, a, a kind of a key but unspoken, implicit uh, character, or at least important context for the book. And part of it might be too just how eager so many people, at least myself as as one of them, were to watch a brash young woman 
take on this oligopoly in lab uh, technology and, uh, and, and, and bring them to heel, right? So this is a story you want to cheer on. This is a story of underdogs. And it's a story, in a sense, or it became uh, a story of feminism. But I had an interesting conversation with the female venture capitalist who said that serious venture capitalists, uh, and this, she's, she is one of them, didn't take Holmes very seriously except for Draper Jurvetson. And again, as you said, that was extremely early. That was one of their, uh, their early bets, uh, you know, thousands of which occur uh, on Sand Hill Road each year. And this venture capitalist thinks that the Theranos story, of course, is devastating uh, for, the, uh, for the idea of, of bringing more gender equality to Silicon Valley. Would you agree with that? I don't think, I mean, it, it, that may be the case. Uh, I don't think it should be. Uh, I think that, um, you know, that there are always going to be uh, bad apples. Um, and, and uh, you know, God knows there have been many in, in business. There have been many male swindlers in, in the history of capitalism. And I think as, as uh, women become uh, more involved in, in the business world and, and found their own companies, there are bound to be a few uh, bad apples am- among women as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's not to say that, that the, the Theranos precedent should be generalized to, yeah. to uh, you know, think that, that uh, women can't do this or that, they, that they're, uh, you know, more likely to, to commit fraud. I think that's, that's a ridiculous notion. But I think we just have to accept that just as there are bad apples among men, and there are fraudsters among men. There are bound to be among women as well. So what do you think is going to end up happening with with Holmes and Balwani as well? I think she's going to fight the charges. I, I don't see her uh, taking a plea deal, because right. I think any, any plea deal would uh, necessarily involve several years of, of prison time, and, and I don't think she'll uh, go for that. Um, and, and I think she's a fighter, and as three and a half years of, of uh, you know, reporting on her, even though I've never once met her because she's never agreed to grant me an interview, I, I think I've gotten a, a pretty good idea of her personality and, and you know, how she, how she functions. And I think she's going to be fighting this uh, until uh, the day that she goes on the, on the stand and, and tries to convince the jury that, that actually, you know, all she did was try to build a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and she may try to throw her ex-boyfriend, who's <clears throat> the number two of the company, Sonny Balwani, under the bus. Uh, I expect that to happen for sure. Um, she will probably claim that she wasn't aware of a lot of the things that he did. And, and I push uh, against that notion. I push back against that notion in the epilogue of my book. Right. Um, this, this was a crime. This was a fraud that was perpetrated by both of them as a partnership. Um, mostly of equals, but actually she always had the last say. Uh, yeah. A lot of the employees who, who worked with the two of them uh, told me that um, uh, she always had veto power, and if there was something she didn't want to do, then it, it didn't happen. And so the, the notion that he was her Svengali and, and that he was sort of the puppet master who pulled her strings and, and, and um, misled her or manipulated her, I think, is an inaccurate one. Uh, but I do expect her to try to play that card uh, at trial. John, thanks very much for your time. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Fantastic work by you. And uh, we thank you again for coming back on the show. Thanks very much. Thank you. The book, again, is Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal, the author of the book, uh, which 
I mean, it's still an amazing story, Peter, and it's still going to continue to I, be an amazing story until we have a an absolute final conclusion here. I, I'm looking forward to John's second Pulitzer with this one. <laughs> exactly uh, right. Yeah. Exactly right. Great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.